Welcome to Creative Income, a podcast that focuses on making a living in the creative space. Whether you're an actor, filmmaker, musician, painter, or anything that doesn't fit the nine to five mold, there is value for you here. I'm Lars Lindstrom. Let's get into it. Hey, everybody. Lars Lindstrom from Creative Income here. Thank you so much for coming back. Appreciate your time. Man, it is, it's a busy world out there. There's a lot of things to listen to. There's a lot of things to watch. Uh, there's a lot of people to talk to, maybe less people during COVID, but uh, I, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate your time and your being here. Um, this is, here's what I want to do this week. So I want to take a second. Uh, I want to think about one person in your life that is a creative, that is completely freelance in the creative space. You got it? You thinking of that one person? Give you a couple seconds more. Here we go. All right. We are going to reach out to that one person, send them a text or give them a call or do something. I don't know anything. And uh, let them know about the podcast. And uh, let's do that. Because I think, you know, if one person shares it with another person and they listen, that's how it grows. There's nothing algorithmic about podcasts. It's not like YouTube where you put in a bunch of keywords in the SEO and it magically reproduces a billion times. Podcasts grow. It's a, it's a grind from the beginning. They grow by word of mouth. And that's pretty much the only way you can do it without an audience. And I don't have an audience of hundreds of thousands of people. So, um, so yeah, so it's up to you guys, really, truthfully. And it's working. So I have to tell you guys, it's really working. The podcast almost doubles uh, every week in, in downloads. So I'm ecstatic for the amount of people that are talking about it. I'm ecstatic for the feedback I'm getting. Uh, but let's keep it going so we can so we can grow these things exponentially. Um, what else? Uh, I didn't get any responses from the the thing I threw out last week with the, you know, throw me questions throughout the week of financial subjects you want me to touch on without an interview uh, a guest or something like that. So, you know, it could be anything. Um, LLC versus S-Corp or, uh, you know, what to invest in first as, as a you know, person starting out, that kind of stuff. So if you have any questions, send them my way. I'd be happy to, to break them down in little 15, 10, 15 minute segments. This week on the podcast, we've got Amy Stellhorn. Amy, I've known for years. She's fantastic. I love working with Amy because I know that as soon as I'm hired on, it's going to be a great time. And it always is. She treats her employees like family. Uh, and she just has a blast. I mean, we've done, like, like I we would go get foot massages after shoots. You know, I mean, like that kind of stuff. We, we go to dinner and we go to dessert after dinner. And I mean, we just have an absolute phenomenal time. And I've learned a lot. Uh, on how to enjoy life after working with Amy for a while. Um, she has some incredible tips. There's one thing you're going to find out in this in this uh, episode that just blew my mind, and that was um, she had a friend that started working for a big company, and she said, come on, let's do some, you know, I'll hire you as a freelancer. And she said, give me a couple days, I'm going to start a business instead of be a freelancer. And that's kind of what got the whole ball rolling. So I'm excited for you guys to hear why she did that and how she did that. Uh, so let's jump into it. Amy, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Uh, would you mind telling the listeners where you come from and what you do? Hi, Lars. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I can. Where Where do I come from? How far back do you want me to go? Uh, let's all, just start with your professional first? career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Let's just go from when you started working and I and I before okay, even yeah. before you started Big Monocle. Um. So. My career begins uh, in 2000, and I was in college that at that time, and the dot-com, the very first dot-com boom was just taking off, and I wanted to be part of it, and I was this 19-year-old from Utah and Washington, and I'd never had a spice in my life. <laughs> And never, <laughs> never traveled outside of Utah, Idaho, Washington, Colorado, kind of that little corridor. And I had just finished my second year of college and had an associate's degree in graphic design and il illustration. And I kind of was just like, I feel like I want to take a break and see what's going on out in Silicon Valley. So I drove out on a Sunday and... Did you have a place to stay? <clears throat> um, I stayed with a friend mm -hmm. who, uh, wait, where was I staying? Yeah, I had a friend who had gotten a job out there. He was living in Fremont. So this is San Francisco area. And 
I stayed with him and it was me and another friend. I like, I talked to another design friend colleague or classmate into driving out. And we drove out on a Sunday on a whim, put our resumes on monster.com, which was where you did that (laughs) at that time. (laughs) And literally this is like the era before everyone realized like it wasn't enough just to like buy dogfood.com, you know, or whatever, but it was like early everything.com. And, uh, so two years under my belt. So think about, I don't know where you were Lars when you were two years into design school, but you're just, you're or film school. Like you're just barely learning conceptual totally frameworks. Right. Like, and you're, yeah. you're, and they're doing a lot of like technical stuff. So you're barely learning to use Adobe creative suite and things like that. And you're the projects you're taking on are fundamental um, color and design or typography you're learning really like all the basic building blocks you're learning the tools and I feel like later in college is when you learn to hone those skills into really really creative craft mm-hmm. so I had some of the fundamental tools I had a portfolio from you know intro to graphic design and color and design and typography you know like it wasn't an advanced portfolio whatsoever uh, but drove out. Uh, put my resume on monster by Wednesday of that week. I had four job offers, like so many interviews, four job offers. They were all for startups. Um, and they all were so excited about me and I was so confident, Lars. I feel like the more I know, the, the less confident I am in some ways. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Cause I know, I know how much I don't really know. Um, while I know, you know, I have my 10,000 hours and then some in a lot of areas. I really was just so confident. And this is before Pinterest. This is before Instagram. This is before kind of everyone had some basic design and composition skills. This is, you know, 2000. So um, I had four job offers. People didn't know I was only 19 years old. I was being invited to go to drinks with the team and all kinds of stuff. (laughs) And and I wasn't old enough to go to a bar and I didn't want to tell them that. So I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I have other plans. But uh, where I really wanted to work was um, with Marty Newmeyer. Do you know who Marty is? No, I don't. He, So he's a r- massive brand expert in this world. And if you've, a few of his popular books are uh, The Brand Gap, Zag, The Designful Company. They're all branding books. Yeah. He has really powerful, simple perspectives on things. Uh And my heart, I really wanted to see if I could work for him. And so I hadn't accepted any offers. And on, I think it was like Thursday of that week. So I had four Java offers in my pocket. People are excited about me. I just walked into the studio and happened to run into him. I was just like, oh, I just wanted to leave a resume for Marty. And he's like, I'm Marty. And I was like, cool. And he's like, come back tomorrow. I'll interview you. And because I had just popped in, I was literally wearing flip flops and a tank top and jeans, I think, and oh not, gosh. not cool ones. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I came back the next day dressed for the interview and, um, he looked at my portfolio and then leaned back in his desk, put his hands behind his head, put his feet up on the desk and said, well, your portfolio is hopeless. But you're not. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wait, what? Because everyone else, I was so confident, like so uh-huh. confident. And my friend, my my like classmate who was out there with me, we actually went to the same interview together. And he, I can't remember exactly how that happened, but he was like, man, you are so confident. And I really was and felt really great. So when Marty said that, I was just kind of like, oh, jaw on the floor. Yeah. Uh, but he followed it with, but you're not you know, your portfolio is hopeless, which it really was Lars. Like I, I had only some foundational stuff, Wow. but you're not, you remind me of myself. You can work for me for free. <laughs> so I oh, had a choice. <laughs> yeah. I had a choice to make kit. Do I go to one of these startups uh, for money? And I was being offered like 40 K out the gate, which in 2000 was a really big deal. Like, yeah, especially your college student, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I'm 19 years old. Big deal. So, um, I'm like, crap, do I take the path to survival or do I uh, 
try to work for Marty for free. Mm-hmm. And luckily I called my parents and my dad let my, I think my dad was actually unemployed at the, that moment. He had made a career change. So my parents weren't in a position to help. Yeah. Um, but he let my, his parents know. Um, and my grandma and my grandpa called me and they were like, take the quality thing, go for wow. the job with the big deal guy mm. over the startup, which, and they said, we'll help you pay your rent. So in Palo Alto in 2000, I had a studio apartment. Um, it actually had a separate kitchen, which is kind of a big deal for a studio, <laughs> uh, beautiful drippy Ivy on forest Avenue in or forest street in Palo Alto, right behind the post office. If anyone listening knows Palo Alto, it's like this very European, beautiful building. And then Marty's studio was two blocks or three blocks, the other side of University Ave from me. So I didn't have a car, but I could walk there. So my grandparents paid my um, mortgage. It was $1,400 for a studio, which I think even by today's standards, that's a lot. Yeah, Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that allowed me to work for Marty. Um, so I took the, the job with Marty. And as a result, my next boss was actually scared of me because I had worked for Marty. Wow. And Marty ended up being kind of my, um, it's two beautiful things that came out of working for Marty, probably way more than I can name, not only two. But one was, it was like finishing my college degree because yes. he had a perspective on everything. He was such an expert and I really got to learn from him. And then two, uh, about a year after I started working with Marty, the dot-com bust hit hard, hard, hard. Maybe it started hitting six months in, Yeah. but literally everyone had to pull their spending all like the magazine couldn't even print an issue we had worked really hard on. So Marty had two business arms. He had the critique and magazine of graphic design thinking, and then he had a, um, branding and packaging site called Newmeyer Design Team. And everyone pulled their spending. So we couldn't send a magazine to print. There was no money. And because I was super cheap. And by the way, he did start paying me after my first month of unpaid work. Oh, $8, wow. $8 an hour. <laughs> and then <laughs> after the first three months, I was on put on staff and, and making money. So I proved myself for him. And because I was his cheapest and hardest working, probably, I'm sure I kind of was. I didn't I've always kind of had a lot of horsepower and a lot of, um, uh, I worked really hard. I was one of the last people that he had. He eventually, um, closed down new Mario design team and critique. Uh, wow. and then eventually ended up spinning up another brand agency, but yeah, it was a beautiful, beautiful start to my career. And I still talk to Marty and, um, I'm so thankful for that start. So, at what point did you, I'm sure maybe you had another couple of jobs where you're working for other people. What point did you start to say, you know what, I need to not work for somebody else anymore. Mm-hmm. I need to build something for myself. At what point did that transition start to happen? Um, there was kind of a, a real defining moment for me. So I only went to, I went to my next studio um, that's since been sold. So, but it was a Minneapolis based studio and I was working for their California office. And eventually I was running that as the second youngest person there, Mm. um, the West coast office. And I was paid handsomely, even more handsomely than I pay myself today in terms of salary. Uh, and I was loving it, like absolutely loving it. Um, but it, the love with which you run (laughs) and a studio and you know, this Lars, like, uh, I just had this moment where I was like, I can't do this for someone else anymore. It feels like a pound of flesh every day because it's, it's more than I, I, I'll be honest. I didn't appreciate the magic checkbook while I was in that situation. I hadn't yet run my own thing. Um, What do you mean by magic checkbook? uh, Like while I was responsible for the profit and loss of that office and really like winning new business and working through things. And I still like, you know, the headquarters paid our paychecks, you know, right. <laughs> like yes. I never had to stress that like pay, I couldn't meet payroll, which if you've ever, you know, built up a big agency, like all of a sudden your burn rate is no joke and yeah. you're outlanding 50 K projects that are like, great, that's two weeks of payroll. How do I 
like, you know, you're just, and that's going to take months to do that 50 K project or, you know, depending on what the project is. Yeah. So I didn't really appreciate that. I had that security blanket of, uh, someone else who had to worry about that like I never yeah, once you're worried still about young making and naive you're young and naive I was and... I was dude I was yeah. <laughs> I so was um so I was 33 when I opened up my own studio I just was like I don't think I can do this for anyone else I just really was it, it for me I was like I'm not wasting my time I'm really enjoying this I'm not wasting my time and I would recommend to anybody who's at a studio who's thinking about starting their own thing, obviously trying to get tips from pros like you who've done this, um, Mm -hmm. be okay being paid to learn, you know, like I was basically being paid to learn how to run an office. I didn't really see it that way at the time. Um, but that's what I was doing with this, with the safety net of someone else is on the hook to make payroll. And do you still not have a college degree? I have my associates. Okay. But I never, wow. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're insanely successful in case anybody's wondering. Um, so I love that. I actually love the idea of being paid to learn and, Mm -hmm. and maybe if you're eventually the end goal is to start something that's fine, but get your education while someone else is paying you and you don't have to worry about Mm -hmm. payroll and all those other startup costs. So how did you springboard from that decent job, the, the handsome salary to starting your own studio? And what did that look like financially? Um, it was reckless Lars absolutely reckless. (laughs) It made no sense. So I don't really recommend this. So I'll give you what I did. And I'll also give you my advice to myself at that time. Perfect. But the religion I'm trying to follow is what's in my intuition. I grew up in a strict religious framework and I was always looking for authority to tell me what to do next. So what, what, what do the experts say? What does Hmm. the patriarchy say? What does, you know, like what does the, college framework say I should do. And I remember being a little bit tortured about investing heavily in my education because I thought I was, I was raised that I would be a mom and that's my calling in life and that's it. And um, I always knew that there was something more for me. And I was a little tortured about like, you know, paying the art, art centers where I would have gone where your dad teaches Lars and yeah. where you went. Amazing. Went, school. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to go to art center really bad. Um, most of my professors had gone to art center and um, I even went and toured it. Uh, after leaving Marty, I was like, maybe I should go back to school. But instead I got this gig that was great. And I grew, I think my colleagues called me a black hole of responsibility. It just worked like a dog. And then, um, so, but there was this moment that was like, it's time to go. And I couldn't deny it. And it didn't make sense because at the time my husband had been working at Stanford business school and, uh, he's their IT security guy and decided that he maybe wanted to be a food truck entrepreneur and so he quit his job and we had a food truck startup and then I was like I can't explain it but it's time to go and at the time I had a two-year-old little boy who um, I had stayed home with him full-time for four months and then gone back to work part-time for six months and then went back full-time and I was Mm -hmm. feeling it was summer it was like late May. And I was like, you know, I just feel like I need to quit and spend the summer with my kid before he goes into preschool. So I had quit and I was just chilling with my son and our feed truck was losing us money. And (laughs) it made no sense. It was like, why? But my husband's like, okay. I was like, I need to quit my job. And he was like, okay, supportive. Um, And we should have been really worried because we had a a mortgage in Menlo Park, California that wasn't um, anything to uh, be cavalier about, but, uh, it just felt right. So I kind of took a break, which I really needed after, you know, my career taking off at 19, I was tired, very tired. Yeah. And I had a former client call. She had left a big semiconductor equipment manufacturer job. And we had worked together for, I don't know, 10 years while she was there from the Mm -hmm. time she was like a product manager all the way to when she was the brand manager she went off to a startup while I was still at my agency and had no money. So we hadn't worked with her in a minute. And then she went over to Intel and called and said, Hey, I'm at Intel and they don't trust young people. And there's no young people on my staff, literally nobody under 40 and neither at the incumbent agency. And she's like, we're trying to market to millennials 
And I think because of your executive credibility and your youth that my team will listen to you. Like the people here will listen to you. Will you take this project? And I said, yeah, absolutely. But I don't want to come in as a freelancer. I want to come in as a company. So give me a second to get my paperwork in order. So I, uh, I'm a New Mexico LLC because it was the fastest file that I could do Wow! Uh, at the time. It was like a three day to get your paperwork and your numbers. Um, so literally over the weekend, I named my company. We're called Big Monocle. That was designful. I didn't want the agency to be called my name. I didn't want everyone being like, where's Amy or Stellhorn, you know? Yeah. Um, and I wanted it to be bigger than me. And then I wanted something really unique that was kind of fun. And cause I actually the, the agency I'd worked at was very serious, very like Scandinavian, very, <laughs> uh, orderly, very serious brand. And it, you know, me, Lars, I, I, for those listening who are fo- follow so like Zodiac yeah. stuff, no, no, just who follow Zodiac stuff. I'm like, I'm a Gemini Libra Sagittarius. So I'm like air, air and fire. I'm very spontaneous. I'm spontaneous. I'm silly. I'm, I cannot hundred percent things, but I have a lot of fire and a lot of horsepower and I love to bring clarity. I love to get a project started, but I'm not, I'm not a hundred percenter. My air energy is too high. So I surround myself with amazing designers who have that precision and that ability to see things to 100%. Yeah, yeah I have really a, I have a, in the I have a theory in the art world <laughs> that goes something like uh, there's two there's two types of artists there's 95 percenters and 100 percenters the difference is the 100 yeah. percenters take twice as long to get that extra five percent and mm. uh, and I'm a 95 percenter 100 percent I really am yeah. like and I, I will get something to 95 percent and then I will hand it off to those artists that are 100 percenters to finish the job and agonize over the color and the cut and that exactly 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 that's where i am too i'm not happy deep in the trenches although occasionally i love to kern a whole document i'm like yeah just let me typeset that thing to death like i will go crazy (laughs) um in that just like flow of precision but yeah so i um that was our start it was just hey can can you take this project so you've got one client and it's Intel. Intel. Uh, so our first client is a big one. And and because she knew she wanted to work with us, I didn't have to do the traditional agency pitch thing to get on their roster of agencies. It was like, I'm in. Wow. Um, and oh. our first project, they double hired. They hired the incumbent agency out of Boston, a big one. And they hired yeah. us. And at the time, <laughs> this is hilarious. You actually were best friends with my first hire. Yeah, Jeff, uh, yeah. Jeff, who was yeah. probably working the food truck at first, he right? Was, he was, yeah, that's things go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we had a food truck and my brother was like, hey, my friend, uh, Jeff had interned at um, 826 Valencia, like really hip, cool writing shop and mm-hmm. wanted to move back out to San Francisco. He's a Southern California boy like you, but had been at school in school in uh, the Midwest and he wanted yeah. to move to San Francisco and he was like, Hey, would, would you hire him for your truck? And I was like, sure. Which actually like if Jeff ever listens to this, um, he was not the right person to be in the truck. Like definitely no. not, not no. at all. Not at all. Yeah. No food experience. Uh-huh. No, like I mean, or, just or his like, brother, Caleb, who also works in the neither, truck. Did not <laughs> yeah. have been in my truck, either one, yeah. not at all. Which is partially why our, well, we got into the Sundance food festival, fried chicken sandwich. that was unreal, but like the food cost was way too high. We were just too in love with food. So we had this organic chicken buttermilk soaked local sourdough rolls like there's a reason why food trucks to be profitable need to be like a hot dog or a taco yeah um yeah so i mean it was just a whole thing but jeff i find out one day that he's a writer and so while i was still at my other agency i used him to concept some event themes for a big tech brand and he did great and so when this first project came in and it was messaging related um i hired him and I'm like, you shouldn't be in my truck. You should be in my agency. And uh, he's he's like really good. He's just I know. so creative, so well read, so thoughtful, so mm-hmm. gentle. I mean, just like one of the, he's a rare gem for sure. He is, yeah. Um, and ten years younger than me, I think. I'm not sure, but roughly. So you know, yeah. like a little different perspective. And our work was better, and they had something to compare it to. So while it was scary to have 
the client double hire for that safety. Um, our work was really good and we started to get passed around Intel and it was amazing. Like to this day, my company's uh, eight and a half years old and we have never once advertised for work. It is all word of mouth. Incredible. Yeah. That's um, so lucky though. And and what part of that, what percentage of that was luck and what percentage of it was, was just you being a talented designer and a, and a good people person? Um, the fact that we're word of mouth. No, I'm saying or that, that first just the start. Client. Yeah. Oh, it's a hundred percent trust. Like I had worked my Mm. ass off for this, um, this person. And she just was like, this is the, you know, I think you tend to gather an A team as you move through life, like people you trust to get anything done. And there is a lot of risk for marketers and, um, you know, people in brand roles at companies like they can hire an, an unknown agency that has pretty good looking portfolio and still maybe not get quite what they need out of it. Um, so working really hard for everybody, and this is my first big tip to, for creative income. If we want to be really clear about like how to grow and get these kind of clients, it's, you know, my clients trust us to get anything done with a high degree of care and, and do it well every time. So that's how word of mouth happens. They're like, you know, I can't tell you the number of projects I've done where it's just a client talking to somebody else on a plane. Is like you should really hire Amy, and then I do a phone call, and we start working together, and we've never met. Um, and then the business you already have is—I forget. There's an actual stat around this, Lars, but I'm going to say fifty percent. But I think it's way bigger. Um, rather than running after some RFP that came in the door, your real source of ongoing revenue and power is your existing clients, the ones you've already landed. So keep wowing them, keep working hard for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is probably, way probably, easier. Probably business closer to 80, 20, right? Like the 80, 20. Oh, yeah. 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 The clients you already so, have are a known entity and you have a working relationship. So, and I tell my team and we systemize around this, that I want to be their natural choice for the next project. I want to be so good that they're not like, let's get a quote from someone else. Like literally, I don't right. want that. I don't want them even being tempted. It's like, no, like these guys are in the flow. They know us. They're really good. They've never let us down. You know, like yeah. it's, it's, and so I have relationships with clients where they open their budget and they're like, Hey, I have this much money to spend. How should I spend it? Cause they know that I care about them and I'm going to give them a true honest assessment. Like this is how I would divide that out. This is how you're going to get the most bang for your buck. Um, and that means advising them even on projects I'm not doing. You know, I'm like, you yeah. should go and do this, this piece. So, um, so yeah. Intel's fantastic. You've got this big client that's kind of passing you around within the, uh, the company. Uh, I'm sure you're scaling, you're uh, hiring employees, and then something happens in the industry where semiconductors are not as needed or popular because of mobile devices. People aren't buying computers anymore. So what starts to happen when your biggest client starts to shut departments down or phase things out? Um, well, I definitely think you uh, don't want to be too heavily invested in any one client, right? Which what, which did happen to me because Intel started to gobble up as much capacity as I could build. Um, mm. And they reorg and change their direction all the time. So we were the agency of record for 5G for the Olympic Games in Korea. Amazing project. So wow. great. And then Intel exited 5G. <laughs> So it's just like <laughs> that quick, like there is from what looks like a huge uh, arm and a huge piece of business is gone. We were also their agency of record for wireless charging, which was we did pilots at the Levi Stadium with the Ritz Carlton, with Hilton, with Marriott, like all these amazing. Yeah, no, um, we, I did a video campaign for wireless charging. Oh, did you? With me? Yeah, with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and a we've done so many too. projects, Lards. I, I don't even I know. recall. I know. I know. So, and then all of a sudden they're like, "Yeah, we're not doing that anymore." You know, it's just they they either sell a, a unit of business or they pivot or something. So we also were their agency of record for EDU. We've also played a pretty broad role. We do a lot of stuff in um, the business units, and we've helped launch processors and stuff like that. So. Mm-hmm. So they're eating up a lot of capacity. It's a very vulnerable place to be. And I will say like, it was hard to diversify when they're eating up everything I can, you know, as fast as I can hire, they're eating up our bandwidth. So I don't even 
want to go new, get new business because I don't know how to satisfy the, you know, the bandwidth that that yeah. might demand. Um, obviously we flex with the right partners. So we don't have any in-house video crews. So um, I have a couple super trusted people that we turn to most of the time. And that's, you're one of those. Um, Phil Goodwin. And yeah. 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 Phil Goodwin. We, we do a lot of um, expanding with freelancers, which is really great. Writers, designers, video, we don't do any in-house development. That's all out of house. Hmm. Uh, yeah. But it, it's, it's hard when you get that, uh, that heavily invested. But what ends up happening is people that you've worked with at a big company leave and they go somewhere else. And that's one of the big vulnerabilities with creative work. I don't know if your other um, guests have said this, but no, they haven't people take their agencies with them. So like if, if a head of brand leaves a big company and they're my client, the person who replaces them has their own trusted A team. Like it, the work doesn't naturally go to you. Usually you lose that work. Occasionally, if you've been working deep with other people in the org, you'll stay. Um, yeah, and that kind of turnover is right? Yeah, but the, the bright side is typically who, whoever was hiring you there, wherever they go to their next thing, they pull you along. So that's yeah. part of how we've grown is when our clients move on to startups or other tech companies. So Big Monocle is hev- heavily invested or heavily, our clients are heavily tech, med tech and startup tech, and then NGO for good stuff. So we work with big brands like Intel, eBay, Facebook, Salesforce, Autodesk. Um, and then we have med tech startup clients. We have uh, two autonomous drone client startups. We have a AI chip startup. Um, so a lot in tech and med tech, and that's a lot just, and it's all, all Silicon Valley. It's just, as people move around, they tend to pull you along. So that's how we've grown. I haven't, as I said, I've never like ran a campaign to try to, um, pull in clients. I don't actually have a funnel for that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it is, it's, it's lucky and it's, it's, it's probably prevented me from designfully growing in some ways. Um, yeah. So I don't necessarily, I, while I really appreciate it and I don't take for granted that we're word of mouth, like that's the, the most solid place to be because that's where you really get business. I, I'm sure you're faced with this too. Like responding to RFPs is such a wild card that I almost don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. I mean, they don't know me. We don't have a relationship. It's probably going to just stress me out for two weeks and then we won't get the project where a referral from, um, someone who loves you is, oh, actually, I do know this. Uh, Gartner did a study and they said a well-timed recommendation from a friend is 50 times more powerful than any other marketing you can be doing. So 50X, like, so quit responding to RFPs and like build relationships and know that those are going to build to something. And as they move on, they'll keep referring you and the work will go. So that's really the best way. The thing I, I, I do regret about the way we've grown is, and really it's, it's something I'm working on now so we can speak to that, but um, creative work, as you know, can be a real treadmill. Like the minute you stop making, taking uh, the next video job or a film job or brand project, you stop making money, right? That mm-hmm. it's, it's very much build it once, sell it once. And it's where my business is while it's strong. We have an amazing portfolio and we have really good clients um, we have to keep going, you know, uh, we build something one time and we sell it one time. So what I'm focused on right now is not being on that treadmill full time and having a diverse stream of income coming in. So it's, even though we're successful, even though we're amazing, I'm not really interested in staffing up greatly right now. Um, yeah, because we don't have a reliable income stream, right? So the agencies who do more quote unquote boring work, tend to be more successful than me. I'm doing this work that's very heart driven. It's like every project is lovingly crafted. It's not a 12 month contract for SEO or social content or something like those are the valuable contracts, to be honest, if you want a strong business, because you know, you have that reliable income month after month after month, long-term contracts. My contracts tend to be short. It's like for one project. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I would say like, what I'm trying to do now is not be on that treadmill full time. I'm trying to put some, some, a portion of my time into something that could be a reliable income stream that could be sold more than one time. 
Um, and those are things I'm I'm looking at and, and diversifying my revenue streams into things that uh, I think you've done a lot of this, like with um, purchasing equipment that can be rented out. So you can yeah. make money without that, including your time. Right. Yeah, like so right what now, uh, sorts of income streams have you created uh, besides the business to try and kind of curb some of those feast or famine? Um, well, it's new for me. So I've formed a venture partnership with a dev shop in uh, overseas. They're in Pakistan. Hmm. And we're going to put out 10 apps this year. And that's a little bit to test what's going to hit. Um Obviously, that's a big deal from a marketing standpoint um, when we start to try to acquire users. But right now, like my design plus their dev power, and I haven't wanted to pay anyone to develop some of the ideas we have. But since we're joint partnering, it's it makes a lot of sense. And wow. then when we build something we're really proud of, we'll start putting some marketing dollars, maybe raise money for it, make it its own business, um, or even sell it. So. Mm. Um, that's where I'm headed right now because an app you can build once and sell as many over and over times again. as you can. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not understating the business of running an app and updating it and making it a big deal. Um, obviously like acquiring users and all that is, is not to be, um, minimized in the idea of like, let's put, create an app. <laughs> but <laughs> I like the idea that we're, we're like, um, we've got a venture arm on the side. And then the other thing that we've done is start to take for some of the startups that we really believe in, um, getting paid in equity as well as oh. cash. So it's not just cash. Um, so is, are they open of, to that kind of negotiation? Depending on what stage they're at. Yeah. Um, they, yeah, they can be really open to it. So it's kind of like the, you know, the muralist who got paid in Facebook stock, you know, so I can, I can only afford to do a couple of those a year, but mm -hmm. um, we're doing a little bit of that too. So um, that's brilliant. Yeah. Now on a, uh, you know, because starting a business and owning a business, there are great years and bad years. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure you know, you'll have a great year and you'll hire employees. What happens when the next year you lose one or two of your major clients or major projects fall through? What have you been able to do to make sure that you, keep your money around that you can pay, you know, make payroll and either keep those employees or figure that out. Talk to me about some of the feast and famine aspects of the business. Mm, I got burned really bad in 2017. Yeah. Um, we had staffed up high. We had um, a lot of big projects. And this is one of those times where Intel is like suddenly not in wireless charging, for example, or things like that. So you lose that. A client that was buying a lot moves roles. I had a client who moved over to the Olympic games team in more of just of an executive capacity. So she wasn't hiring agencies anymore. That was a big blow. Um, and then we actually had a, a small client, small-ish um, client who wasn't paying, who owed us a lot of money. Um, mm. And that project um, ended up like, they like, they paid the first like two, it was a big um, web, platform kind of project they had paid like 200 of it and owed us like 300 and wow didn't end up paying we ended up in a lawsuit and um i can't speak to like what how it like ended up great for me but <laughs> or fine fine for me but like still not enough to recover you know yeah so yeah. um i had to slash my team so we went from uh 14 to 5 I think. Tragic. Um, yeah. yeah, it was rough. It was, it took 10 years off my life. It was really, really hard. It was hard to, to navigate the, like, what game is being played here? What, what is this person up to? Like, um, you know, and eventually I had to, you know, we were kind of holding out for that big payment to come in and it didn't. And so I had to cut my team and actually it ended up being kind of a beautiful thing because my payroll had, had grown big enough that uh I just wasn't happy most of the time it really was yeah. like my my burn rate was over 100k a month in just payroll wow. and I you know it, when you're landing a significant project and it's like there's one month of payroll it was just 
it was hard. And I'm, I a hundred percent own my business myself. So I didn't have a partner or a co-founder or anything to like shoulder the burden of leading people and landing new business and running projects and dealing with lawsuits. And, you know, it's just too much. It, it was a lot for me. So I ended up just really slashing my team down and we had really grown. I was comfortable with the size of our staff, but it was a little bloated. It was like, there's some nice to have roles in there and I ended up having to just slash it. And it came at a time when, um, as a founder, I just needed staff that were hundred percent supportive of me and made my life better, not yeah. like added to my burden. You know, I already had a pretty heavy burden. So in trying to make payroll and trying to like navigate all of this. And so it was just a big slash. Um, and I'm really glad I did it because as I built back up, I've built back up with people who are hundred percent supportive. So I would definitely say if, you know, anyone listening really feels like their staff doesn't have their back in some ways, I would, I would consider, um, refreshing that position. Um, yeah. it can be a really nice thing to have like a little bit of a clean blank slate. Um, and I think shrinking down. So the other advice is don't get bloated. Like definitely uh, be careful, run lean, um, use freelancers mm -hmm. to scale for certain projects so that you don't end up holding a really big salary, um, you know, a really big payroll pool. Like you can scale for the projects that are big, add a couple people just for that project and then go back down. Um, so I'm mean, 2020 ended up while it was gnarly for a while because there were um, projects we landed that got canceled. So like contracts that are closed that ended up getting canceled. We had um, ongoing retainers with certain clients that got cut to like a fraction of what they were or canceled for a temporary, you know, for a period of yeah. time. Yeah. It was, it was about six months, probably like five, maybe five months of, not a lot of new business coming in, but I was already running pretty lean. And so it, it wasn't a huge stressor. I told, I comfortably told my team the whole time, don't worry about it. Everyone's job is safe. Don't even worry about this. Um, hmm. And we came back strong and had a really good year, not rev, not our best year revenue wise, but our best year profitability wise, which I would way rather do right. exactly. less <laughs> money and have more profit and do more because yeah. <laughs> really more for us to make more money we're doing more projects which means we're all just more stressed out and more run ragged and yeah and you're not and, lean you got you got to hire more people and that means your payroll is insane and you're just exactly. stressed all the time yeah, yeah it makes exactly. a lot of sense so it, yeah. it actually ended up 2020 i was i was the right size for 2020 coming into it. if i was the size i had been in 2017 i would have had to make some cuts and do some things but i would say like run as lean as you can always like because once you have when when you have a big staff and you're just trying to win projects to feed payroll it's it's not a really beautiful place to be it's kind of a there's a little bit of a fear and scarcity mindset that can exist in that space um rather than abundance um yeah so so what it, what are you doing to make sure that outside of your business you and your husband and your family are able to hold on to something and and have your money grow in other ways uh, real estate. Uh, you highly, are doing real estate. Yeah. yeah, highly recommend putting money into real estate. So we need to do more of it. Um, but we, for about a year, anytime we had enough for a down payment on a property, we were putting that down payment down. Um, so I have 12 doors wow. in real estate. And that for my family is is amazing. Like we'll be able to live on it someday. Um, right now mm -hmm. it's kind of covering its mortgages and um, the mortgages building. that we yeah, have. Just... Yeah, we're building. And so it's not like I feel flush with cash from our real estate right now, but also those properties, we kind of got in at a good time. Um, they're really appreciating as well. So not only is the yeah. mortgage being paid, even if they're not super profitable, like, you know, a lot of them are paying the mortgage and then a few hundred bucks. Um, yeah. Some of them we could be making more on, but we really don't want turnover with our, tenants, tenants like right, of course. They're happy, like we're happy um but they're paying down the mortgage for me so anytime i sell all that money that got paid in i pull out and then the 
properties are appreciating as well. Yeah, so um, we're in a really uh, good position because of that. And we haven't bought anything in a couple of years. And I think that's a little bit of a mistake I would definitely recommend. Um, in fact, when I was going to start Big Monocle, I had a friend who is a Silicon Valley billionaire, amazing dude, real estate guy. Um, and I talked to him at a picnic about, hey, I'm about to start this company. You know, what advice do you have? And he was like, and I should have listened to him. I didn't. So bad <laughs> on me. Probably should listen to billionaires because mm-hmm. there's a reason yeah. there were. He basically owned Silicon Valley when it was orchards, like tons of the land before it got bought right. up. So that's where he made his money. But um, he said, instead of starting a flower shop, for, for example, right, a design shop where you toil night and day to, to like buy flowers, purchase flowers, acquire clients, um, sell the flowers, pay your staff, like just buy the building that the flower shop would be renting from. And then your time is yours and you're making money. And at the time I didn't have money to buy a commercial building. So I kind of couldn't quite take in that advice, but that is really poignant to me today to the point where when I started this conversation with you and I said, look, I, so much of my business is based on selling, building it once and selling it once. And really that's a yeah. bouquet, right? A flower shop. They can only sell a bouquet one time. Hmm. So, and your time is tied up all those hours a day in working in the flower shop where the person who owns the building, they might spend a couple hours a week at most on that building and those tenants or, um, you know, like there's not a ton of time that typically goes into um, property. So, yeah. and, and yeah. there are a lot of services that will manage your properties for you for a fee. So a couple of ours, we have uh, three duplexes and we have a property manager who takes a percentage of the rent and mm-hmm. handles everything. They, they handle putting new tenants in, they handle repairs. Um, and so that works out well for us. And my time is mine and I'm making money. Right. So anytime you can sell something more than once, or you can create a revenue stream where your time is yours, uh, that is a stronger place to be in. And I would advise anyone who's in the agency game to find those revenue streams that are more reliable and don't require your time. So what, what I think in the film industry, it's buying really nice equipment that other people want to rent. Um, yeah. Which day, is what I've done. You know? Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, anytime, anytime I have discretionary income, I'm buying well, right now I, I buy uh, glass or metal. And what I mean by that is lenses or m- like tripods and accessories for cameras mm-hmm. or stands or lights that go on stands because uh, mm-hmm. cameras are sexy and they're really cool, but you know, they only have a five-year lifespan. And yeah. And then they, they're, people they're want the new worthless. camera, then the next yeah, camera. It's all, it's all digital, yeah. you know, so it's changing so, yeah. so rapidly. Yeah. So glass, you know, like vintage glass from the seventies is actually worth more now than it was ever was before. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a finite number of it. So, so yeah, glass. And, and it doesn't require your time. Nope, not at all. I drop it in a rental house and that. make yeah. a cut on it. Yep. You make an investment, but then it can make you money without using your time. So that's I think exactly that's right. that's absolutely critical mix to what you do. I think that, you know, there's a lot of us that are a little bit ego driven. Like I definitely find success. It's in my star chart, Lars. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I don't know if you know about like the houses that your, your planets are in or whatever, but like, uh, Definitely one of my, um, the ways I experience success um, is through my accomplishments. So I definitely appreciate having an agency where I can say, like, I worked with Betty White. I did the logo for the Women's March. I have these really fancy clients. Yeah, We do award-winning work. I There is part of me that's fulfilled by that. But it's definitely um, only part of having a good business. You know, it's like a piece of that where I may not find that success through if I have a really successful rental portfolio, I might like not brag about that. You know, it's just, so I, I do feel like we have different motivations, right? We have different things that make us happy, different things that make us feel successful. And so, um, but having a mix that is both satisfying to you personally and rewarding without draining you is, is big. So I went like kind of the hard route, I would say most of my career was like make money the hard way. And now I'm like, wait, let's build some diversity in our income streams. Let's, um, move toward things that, uh, if I stop, it doesn't stop, you know, yeah, if I yeah. stop working, you know, your lenses are still going to be in demand and managed by the rental house. If you don't want to work for the next year. Exactly. Um, and that's a revenue stream. That's good. And that gives you the kind of life you want. Cause it's really easy to build a business that doesn't give you the life you want. Hmm. Um, 
and a lot of people are like, Ooh, I'm going to go build this business because someone else did. And they, they seem really cool to me. But I think it's, if you're, if you're early in building a company, I would say, what kind of life do you want? And try to be clear on that. Like, really, what are your desires? Do you want to work only four days a week? Do you want to take a month off every, every quarter? Do you, do you, you know, what is it that you really want? And then build a business that will support the life you want. Cause I built my business first and now I have, I've spent a lot of years not having the life I want. And now I'm trying to like, okay, how do I steer this a little bit more into, I'm tired. You know, like I've said, my career started really early. I didn't have those goof off college years. I didn't have those. I got really serious. I got married young. I bought a house young, you know, just like a lot of that piled onto my life early. So um, now I'm like, how can I have more fun? You know, how can I build a life or design a business that's like filled with pleasure and filled with fun? And that's, you know, a little bit more what I'm thinking about. So to anyone who yeah. hasn't yet built that thing that, you know, doesn't give them the life they want because they literally have to work 24 seven to maintain it. Be thinking a little bit more about what you really like and what you really want um, and design it. You can start any business, as you know, Lars, like, yeah. And maybe even start a bit by a business that's already running that you can run a little bit better. Um, there's some things like, I mean, let's not even go into how much money you can make on laundromats, <laughs> you know, right. yeah. um, and, and not full-time do the hamster, the, the treadmill. <laughs> I just don't full-time want to be on right. a treadmill. Well, thank you so much for your time, Amy. I'm going to let you go because I know you've yeah. got some other some meetings, but uh, I, I yeah. can't tell you how much I value your input and your expertise here. Yeah, Lars, you've been such an amazing partner for me through this whole thing. Big and small yeah. projects from from Betty White to our, my favorite moment is you and I working with Betty White. That was a real dream. Um, Yeah. So um, really appreciate it. And um, I love learning from you. So I want to buy some lenses with you too. So we should talk about that in the future. Let's do it. Let's get off this call. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I know. Let's get some lenses that give us some revenue. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. right. Thanks so much. Lars, thanks Mm -hmm. for having me today. Well, thanks, guys, for sticking around. Wasn't that fantastic? I think Amy's fantastic. My favorite takeaway from the entire episode is, is when she had that friend move to Intel, and she said, yeah, come on. And she said, give me two or three days. I don't want to come on as a freelancer. I want to come on as a business. And that started the entire thing, and uh, she's created an enormous amount of success from that. So thanks so much, Amy, for taking your time, and we'll see you guys next week. Next week.